Live from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Todd Benzman, immigration investigator and author of Overrun, How Joe Biden Unleashed the Greatest Border Crisis in U.S. History. You certainly know where he's coming from. Ted Dabrowski joins us, conservative activist and president of Wirepoints. Peter Hanna, a professor and materialist from Chicago Kent College of Law. And Republican commentator Stephanie Hitt. Our program tonight coming to you from home base at AM560, The Answer, just outside Chicago in Elk Grove Village. Nice to have you with us. Phone lines open 1-800-723-8289. We will be talking about illegal immigration and, and most importantly, its impact on cities all over the United States. And we'll talk about that in the second hour, primarily in our broadcast this evening. But we've got lots of other things to talk about as well, including one of the other big issues from Washington, D.C. is, I think, probably the annual discussion about whether or not there's going to be a shutdown or not. So, uh, Ted Dabrowski, I want to start with you because you, uh, you have great financial credentials in your background. Uh, what if the government shut down? What, what, how quickly would we know it and how bad would it be? Bruce, you know, I, I'm, you know, we, we talked about it a little bit beforehand. I'm so sick of this discussion because it just happens year after year after year that there's no credibility uh, with these shutdowns. It's it's always a warning. You know, back in the day, we we're just talking about this. Ronald Reagan shut the government eight, shut down the government eight times. Uh, that was back when we we kind of took finances seriously. But you know, it's for me at the finance at the at the national level, well, at the state level as well. Uh, finances mean nothing anymore. They print money. They they borrow money. They don't tell the truth, so they can shut down the government for a little while. To me, it doesn't matter. You know, there'll be a lot of noise about about downgrades and and you know, uh, you know, like us not paying our debts. But it'll this all be taken care of. This yeah. guy's it'll be taken care of. So I'm sorry, I just can't I can't jump up and down. Stephanie, Hannah, I want to get your reaction. Another conservative perspective. You join us from the great Commonwealth of Virginia, but you're sitting right across from me this evening. Your reaction? Uh, what, I think what's good he, or bad about it? Um, I think I think the lead up to it is what's so bad. I mean. And that's and again, we go through this, what, couple times a year now, every time there's a budget time. We, and, you know, what people don't understand is while there's all these threats and it's going it, to it all comes down to who whoever's crying, you know, the sky is falling the most is going to be the party that thinks that somehow it's going to affect the perception of them. And that's what it's really about is who's it comes down to who's going to be blamed for it. And eventually somebody's going to come up and step up and fix the problem. Right now, Congress is even doing that right now. They've got several appropriations bills all lined up, ready to go. So even if it happened, it would be happen for a day. It would be one headline and we'd move on. Uh, Peter Hanna joins us. He is from Chicago Kent College of Law. And he's been on this program for well over 10 years. He began by being described as a Democrat. Then he was a progressive. Then he was a leftist, and today he wants to be described as a materialist. But you're the closest thing to what might be described as a Democrat, at least in our first hour tonight. So, Peter, I think you you may agree with, with everybody here is that this is a good example that Republicans and Democrats really don't get along and they don't plan anything well. Well, um, yeah, actually, I agree with both the guests. Um, I, I would uh, just specify that I never agreed to be identified as a Democrat, and uh, I, I take that as an insult. Um, but I do agree, especially with the way Ted put it, 
Yeah, money doesn't mean really anything. The government can just arbitrarily say, here's $2 trillion more dollars. I mean, it, it really, uh, materialist is probably the best way I could describe myself because I mean, I really want to focus on the economics, the actual resources, what's actually occurring. Um, the only thing I'll add is, you know, the, the whole shutdown meaning anything is kind of a farce when, you know, like the Pentagon can just self-exempt from the government shutdown. So it really shows what a what a farce this entire exercise is and how both parties are just, you know, playing with, you know, playing with fire. Now, when you when when the primary season comes along, Peter, do you do you not vote anymore or did you ever vote? Well, I mean, I think, you know, voting is a decision that everyone obviously has to make. And I think when people get together and, you know, numbers and vote, they can obviously uh, express their will. But, you know, at the end of the day, I don't see, um, you know, much uh, change regardless of the party in power in the material circumstances of most Americans. Uh, I think overall, you know, the, the, the people's quality of life, their wages, everything, the hours they work, everything is kind of trended in a downward direction for more and more people uh, while costs have skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't really know, um, you know, it's very hard to tie some of the promises people in both parties make to the actual conditions that we find ourselves in. From your perspective, then I want to get a reaction from our other more conservative guests. What, in your view, Peter, is the single most important issue in the country today? I think the single most important issue is the fact that um, the country, uh, as such, has pretty much ceded control of almost all of its institutions uh, to the private sector across the board. Um, the government, really, as it exists, seems completely in the thrall of the private sector, although it's uh, you know, conveniently blamed, right? You have the Democrats blaming the Republicans when they're in power, and the Republicans blaming the Democrats when they're in power. When at the end of the day, it's just tons and tons of resources are being wasted through corruption that kind of cuts through this entire apparatus we call the government. So I think getting you know the actual control back in the government, in the public's hands, and honoring the public's will, I think that's the biggest issue. Ted, do you agree with any of that? Uh, you know, in some ways I might, and in some others I don't. But you know, I, I go a little bit more structural. I mean, of course, uh, you know, things like what matters most right now, maybe it's, maybe it's the border, right? We're just letting people come in and mm -hmm. God knows how that's going to change America. But that's like, that's a current thing. I'd, I'd go more structural. And I'd say that um, for me, the biggest thing is the bastardization of the individual. The individual doesn't matter anymore. It's just the identity politics and the, and the group think where, where the individual doesn't matter. And when we destroy, destroy the value of the individual, America's gone. And so I'd like to see, you know, things like free speech, all those things come back to importance because right now they're being, they're being really attacked. Stephanie? I would, you know, it's interesting. I, my, my first response in listening to Peter was to say, actually, we can tie specific policies to the condition of people's lives today. I mean, people are feeling the effects of inflation when they go to the grocery store and things like that. And those can be directly tied to specific, you know, government actions and individuals. But I think more the biggest problem in politics today is that general feeling that people don't don't feel like they can make a difference and that it doesn't seem to matter that the people <clears throat> are in Washington are so disconnected to what matters to everyday people's lives mm -hmm. that it doesn't matter. It's like we're we're working in two parallel universes. 
the political world and then the everyday world. And people that, don't does, feel no connection. Between doesn't the two. that fly in the face, however, of the the growing movement of people to become more involved in school boards? I mean, that's been a key issue for you oh, even before you moved right. to Virginia. But there's a difference between local politics and national politics, and that is huge. And I think people feel like the only place they can make a difference is in their own block. And that's it. Nowhere else. Yeah. And Bruce, if I may say, people might be trying to do things at the local level, but the more they get centralized, the more that gets centralized at the state level or D.C. and, and laws and rules and policies are coming down from the top. The power down at the bottom is really, really gone. We've got a pause. 1-800-723-8289. That's the phone number. I'm Bruce Dumont. This is Beyond the Beltway. Thanks for joining us tonight. Well, back, we continue with Beyond the Beltway. If you watched uh, Meet the Press today with Christian Welker, they uh, released the latest uh, NBC uh, news poll. And uh, one thing that I found very interesting on the issue of uh, should uh, Joe Biden run again, uh, there was kind of a devastating response, I think. And in that poll, uh, these are people that want a challenger to President Biden. 59% say they want a challenger to Joe Biden. 36% said no, and uh, they didn't go much further in talking about Robert Kennedy Jr., but again, they want, I guess, another challenger other than Robert Kennedy Jr. And when you when you break down where voters are at the moment insofar as looking at the likelihood of Joe Biden being reelected, amongst black voters uh, in 20, 1920 or 2021, he had 80% support. That's now down to 63%. That's a 17% drop just with black voters. So that, that is, by the way, even with Kamala Harris as a running mate, that's where that is. So you can imagine <coughs> that if he should dump Kamala Harris, that number probably would go up insofar as lack of black support, I would think. <coughs> then if you look at the other key elements of uh, what, uh, what made uh, him president over Donald Trump, for Latino voters... 61% of Latino voters in uh, 2021 were for Joe Biden. That's now down to 43%, an 18% drop. For people with a high school diploma or less, it was 43%. It's now down to 26%. That's a 17% drop. And for independence, which I think is probably the, the key of all, it was 50% in 2021, and now it's 36%. That's a drop of 14%. So when you look at those numbers, I mean, they seem to be pretty devastating for the president. And uh, Peter, I want to go to you again. You're, you're not a Democrat. You don't like any of these labels, but I assume that you may hang around with some Democrats or progressives. And I'm just wondering, do any of them bring up the, the subject of the president? And is there anybody out there that, within your sphere of influence, that anybody is excited about Joe Biden? Yeah, I think um, uh, among the people that you know I talk to, 
There is no excitement about Joe Biden. Um, I mean, even the people who were excited about Joe Biden in 2020, it wasn't so much that, wow, Joe Biden, wow, this is our chance finally to vote for a guy who plagiarized his way through, you know, multiple congressional runs. Like, no, it was just this is the option that we have other than Donald Trump, who I think for four years, a lot of people, especially in like cities and urban environments, lost their minds over. Um, so nobody looks at Joe Biden right now, especially with Trump, you know, endlessly indicted and, you know, their fingers crossed that one of these things will stick. This this will be the time the walls really close in. You know, they, there is no enthusiasm or excitement at all. The only person I've seen any enthusiasm and any excitement for really has been Cornell West. Among the people who mm -hmm. and Cornell is obviously a very respected individual, with, uh, Dr. Cornell West, with a lot of, uh, you know, great ideas. But he kind of represents the in my mind, like the spiritual successor of Bernie Sanders. Right. So there are still people coalescing around, you know, those sorts of ideas. But And, and know, by the I, way, I those those that coalesce around those ideas or coalesce around Cornell West, I mean, that's bad news for Joe Biden because those are people that may have gone to Joe Biden. They're not going to go to I'm Donald gonna, Trump. Yeah. But again, it's an important mm, thing. No. I, want, I want to go to Stephanie to get her reaction from this. Do any of these statistics surprise you? Not a single one surprises me. I don't know. I mean, and I do have Democrat friends, um, and they um, nobody is excited about him at all. And it's not just the age thing. It's 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 everything. But it's it's some of the decision making that he's done. And I think there from those that I thought the few people that did like Joe Biden in 2020 and were actually pro Joe Biden. Um, they did see him as a moderate. They did see him as someone who would calm the country, bring it together. They really did believe in that message, and we've seen the opposite happen. I mean, not only have we seen severe decline in the economy directly tied to his immediate policies, but, you know, it's also the way that he behaves, the way he talks, the way that he distances himself from the press. Um, and at every chance he gets, all he does is go out and just decry MAGA Republicans are to blame. And Ted, people don't see that as a positive. Ted, I want you to kind of look across the aisle here. Um, I think if you're, a, if you're a political junkie or a professional political junkie, you could sit in a room with other like-minded viewers or thinkers and look at these polls and say, you know what, we got to do something. This guy can't make it. And then last week, David Ignatius came up with an idea, a very progressive journalist, came up with the idea that not mm. only Joe Biden's got to go, Kamala Harris has got to go, the ticket's right. got to go. So, and again, there was quite a bit of response to it because he was, he's such, he's held in high esteem by many people left of center. But how do you get the attention of Joe Biden? What, what, what would you be saying to him, Ted, if, you're, if your job was to convince him to, to, to bow out? Or to bow out. Um, yeah. Well, you know, there's that the big theory that, you know, maybe he wants to stay in because he's got his own concerns about what he might be, you know, convicted or indicted for. Mm -hmm. uh, and so will no. he maintain his uh, you know, protections by being president? So, you know, that might give him uh, the impetus to run again. But uh, I don't think there's any convincing him to change. I don't think, no. you know, sadly, I think, you know, mentally he's not not strong enough. I don't think there's convincing there. I think the question is. You know, for for the parties, yeah. How do you get them out, and and then who steps in? Is it uh, you know, is it a, is it a Newsom? Is it a Pritzker? You know, I, we've watched oh, Pritzker God. on the we've watched yeah. Pritzker on the stump in in, no. in Florida and in, in New Hampshire. He wants to run. I mean, he he literally has yeah. made his his campaign speeches. But, but uh, yeah, it's tough. Well, uh, you know, what's interesting is that 
The other theory on the conservative side is, you know, it's not about Joe Biden. Um, you know, Joe Biden is there because he is, you know, there's an apparatus behind him. And they're the ones that are going to run the party. They're the ones that are running the country. They're the ones running Democrat policy. And he makes for a great front man. And that's, you know, but if his claim to fame is I'm the guy that beat, you know, Donald, Donald Trump. Trump and you look at that race now. It's even. It's even Stephen. Exactly. He didn't. And, and, he didn't. And, and by the way, we should mention this poll today said that Biden would be slightly ahead of DeSantis, but he would be behind Nikki, Nikki Haley. Haley. Nikki Haley had the best one on one with Joe Biden. Right. I want to go to our law professor because I want you to put on your progressive. I wanted to put your prof, professorial hat on, Peter. Um, you got it. Share, share with this what you think of the. The four indictments that have been leveled against uh, Donald Trump and measure those against at least the growing evidence that seems to be coming out about some questionable activities between Joe Biden and his son, Hunter. And I don't I don't mean the you know, the uh, you know, the 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 gun license charge. I mean, the the charge of uh, conspiracy to uh, uh, to create uh, criminal acts. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can't speak to every single one, but what I can say pretty globally is that all of these indictments or these accused, you know, alleged crimes, you know, some are quite serious, tampering with, you know, interfering with the election. Um, the Georgia RICO claims, uh, so Georgia's RICO law, I, I will say, is uh, known to be absurdly overbroad. You know, five people in a room, you know, who, you know, share a sandwich and share one sentence with each other about something that could be conceivably, conce you know, called a crime or something, even a misdemeanor could lead to liability. It's a very overbroad uh, law, and it's actually being used to uh, prosecute a bunch of protesters, uh, environmental protesters in Georgia who are protesting the development of Pop City um, to uh, basically accuse all of them, 61 people with uh, RICO terrorism-related charges, domestic terrorism. So I know from that case, and I know from Trump's case, that these charges are probably pretty overblown. But the more, the bigger headline I want to share, Bruce, is Trump's crimes, even if you assume them to have occurred, pale in comparison to the crimes of every, pretty much every president, certainly the ones who came before him immediately. Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George Bush the first, Ronald Reagan. These are people who've candidly committed war crimes. So I find it interesting that, you know, what we can do is we could point to some of the relatively low level crimes of Donald Trump, um, which you just simply lack the nuance and sort of sophistication to perform, you know, seamlessly, uh, while we just overlook and give a pass to things that, I mean, look, look at Libya. I mean, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton are responsible for turning Libya into a literal hellscape. And, you know, Barack Obama had the audacity to ask people to donate to his foundation. It's 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 unbelievable. So I what about I what about what about what about Biden? I I I'd, I'd like to delve more into that because I think that's that's yeah. a significant point that I think a lot of people listening would like to hear more about. But again, answer my question. We've got a minute, a minute and a half left. Sure. D delve into the charges that are out there circulating uh, regarding uh, Joe Biden. Are you worried about those legally? I mean, I'm not worried about any of this stuff. This is all, you know, as far as I'm concerned, a form of theater. But in terms of the actual substantive charges, when I look at them, yeah, I mean, I think there was a precedent probably set up last with the last president that impeachment or talk of impeachment is now sort of in the political sort of 
wheelhouse of just back and forth, you know, political jockeying. So I'm not, you know, I'm sure there's probably some credit credibility to them. Um, but I doubt that they're going to be sufficient to ever result in an actual removal. Uh, but yeah, I mean, candidly, when I look at Biden and I look at Hunter Biden, it's just kind of like a sideshow. And I look at Joe Biden and can't, I feel, I feel bad. I don't see this guy as capable of being a criminal mastermind or even having the, you know, the sort of mental cognitive state to, you know, perpetrate a crime, but he, his actions probably did amount to some misdemeanor at some point, but yeah, it doesn't really trouble me. Okay. When we come back, I want to get reaction from uh, our guest in studio uh, to that and the possibility of, uh, of an impeachment inquiry. Uh, that's one of the major issues that members of Congress have to deal with very soon. And I want to hear from them whether they think the idea of impeaching Joe Biden uh, on the eve of an election is a good idea. I'm Bruce Dumont. Don't go away. back and we are at that point in our program some say the most exciting part of our program where we let each of our guests <laughs> introduce themselves and describe themselves we're going to begin with ted dabrowski ted oh thank you yeah so i'm president of wire points and i've been i've been with wire points about uh geez already six years and, you know and at wire points we're we're obsessed with trying to turn around illinois we're we're worried about you know the path it's on a lot of people are worried not not just us um, this used to be the destination, well, a, a massive destination uh, state, not just for the U.S., but for the whole world. It's a beacon of opportunity back in the 60s and before. And today, we are a shrinking state. We're just one of three states that shrunk last decade, West Virginia, Mississippi, and Illinois. So uh, we're fighting hard to tell the truth. We're very data-obsessed about what's happening with, with the economy, with jobs, with crime, the migration stuff, all of it. You know, we've got to expose the truth because nobody seems to want to really talk about about the data and then the truth with that and uh, 30 seconds more on, on wire points. describe a little bit more wire points yeah so what we do is we do our research policy commentary we aggregate news as well and uh what we're out to do is to make sure people understand what the facts are uh the traditional media mo won't cover most of what we cover so we're we're trying to just get the truth out there is it because the the, the mainstream media doesn't cover it because they think it's too boring or they think your research is slanted one way or the other. Well, I, I don't think they slant. I think what they think is they can't go against the status quo. When Governor Pritzker, okay. you know, Madigan, all those guys control everything, have controlled everything. And so they don't want to go against the status quo because they want to be invited to the parties. Stephanie, introduction. I am a currently a political activate, activist and commentator. I, um, I recently ran the, uh, was campaign manager for the U.S. Senate campaign in Illinois Kathy for Selby. United States. And uh, before that, I was very active in local politics, activism, and including uh, school issues um, involving school boards and changing the curriculum in schools. That's how I got to know Ted, was mm -hmm. through our efforts um, in fighting um, the DEI movements that are taking over the school boards a, across do, the country. Do you have a preferred candidate for president? I sure do. Who? I like Ron DeSantis. You like Ron DeSantis? He's the only guy that has actually done all the work. He knows how to implement principled conservative policies. <clears throat> He's not a populist. He's a conservative. 
and um, he's effective. He effectively has governed. He may not be the flashiest. He may not be the cutest. He may not, um, but he is the, um, he knows how to get the work done, Mm -hmm. and he's done it effectively, and he's done it while garnering support and flipping a state from blue to red. Okay. Peter Hanna, give us your extensive interview or introduction. Oh, well, I won't be that extensive, but my name is Peter (laughs) Hanna. I'm a lawyer. Um, I practice in areas involving uh, privacy, cybersecurity, and constitutional law with a focus on policing, habeas uh, corpus. Uh, I've done a lot of appellate work. Um, And yeah, I'm very passionate about uh, our rights as individuals and our development as a society and as a, you know, government. You've said on this program that you and your parents don't get along. Is that still the case? No, I've never said we don't get along. I, but politically, I, I said, politically. Actually, yeah, what I have said is that we differ. No, I'm actually quite close with my parents and Good. get along uh, fantastically. And um, they're actually big fans of the show. Uh, but I think over the course of our lives, yeah, we've differed politically. Um, but it's interesting. Over the past, I would say, five or six years, there's been uh, a much greater convergence uh, across a lot of issues because I think we, my parents, myself, and you know a lot of people I know and, and your panelists, there are lots of people listening to this show now, um, are beginning to kind of like look beyond the kind of ideological baloney of people saying just like, I'm, you know, going to do this. And make America great, or no, we need to save democracy this way, and are seeing inflation take over, you know, their lives, and are seeing their jobs become tougher and their hours get harder, and they're asking like something is having this effect, and you know, it's it is indeed policies that are having this effect. The point I made earlier is that people don't see how their votes for a policy translates into action around them. People mm-hmm. are voting for things that they're not actually getting uh and then some other people who end up in control seem to be imposing policy not that people voted for or wanted but that they just choose one of the things that uh, you've been involved with ted is the whole issue of of economic equity because as you said the state of illinois the city of chicago many of the progressive cities of the united states they've they've been you know playing this tune for the last 10 plus years and uh, you've you've delved into uh, how equitable it is living in a large state or a large city, and uh, let, let you share your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating that the uh, the word equity has taken mm-hmm. over Illinois, and it's taken over many parts of the country. Uh, but equity and, uh, you know, the whole progressive notion of, of, you know, progressive isn't good enough, right? Equity. And when you look at it, you think about Pritzker. He's a huge fan. You had Lightfoot. Every, you know, if you look at their, their budgets, their, their speeches, equity's everywhere. And so I started saying, wait a minute, you know, they, they're obsessed about equity. They've been pushing this progressive push for, for decades, let's look at how Illinois looks. And when you look at that, you would think, so you would think based on that, we would be the most equitable equity mm-hmm. state in the country. Well, no. When you look at this, you know, Illinois is, is, is pathetic, right? Illinois' black unemployment rate, second highest in the country. You look at Florida, Alabama, much, much lower than ours. You look at um, <coughs> the gap between black and white unemployment. We have the, uh, the, the highest, nation's highest gap in that, in that. It's wild. So why are we so bad? If you look at uh, the poverty rate, the gap between the white and black poverty rate, sixth worst in the country. Uh, you know, and I could, I could go on. Household incomes were the third worst in the gap between black and white. What happened? You know, and, and all of America should know what we look like because there's many people out there pushing the equity agenda. And all they need to do is yeah. look at Illinois, look at Chicago, and they'll understand what a failure it is. Is, is that a failure of... Republican 
Republicans in Illinois who have failed to make the case because if all of your statistics are correct, and I don't challenge any of them because I don't have but the facts. They, and they're all Census Bureau. Okay. These are not, yeah, these are not so, our numbers. Yeah. I mean, is it is it the Republicans can't uh, articulate those positions or is there something deeper than that, Peter? Oh, there's definitely something deeper than that. I'm so glad, I'm so glad uh, Ted mentioned them because what that really shows is whatever, you know, magic mumbo jumbo language you want to put on something, <laughs> equity or, or whatever, the results are right there. So clearly what is, you know, what is actually being, you know, spent on, what policies are actually being backed, what programs are being backed are not achieving the claimed or purported, you know, outcome. So whatever you, the reality is I'm all for economic, real economic equality, real economic justice, not whatever this is, which is ultimately you know, some people putting money in one place and enriching some other people uh, that, you know, you're not, you know, you, where's the beef, right? Like you're, you're claiming that you're investing in this stuff and the results aren't coming. So your policy is obviously not working or we're missing something. Or, or it's not true. Right. Well, right. you know, yeah. ha- having spent um, some time out, out in the, the trenches of, po- you know, the actual on the ground, grassroots politicking. Door knocking. Door knocking. The problem, especially in a place like Chicago, but we see it in a lot of cities and a lot of these urban centers, which basically are the tails that wag the tail of these <coughs> these other states, and that is um, the um, the fix is in, and you know what fix the fix is in the the political system in this city, and and so much of it is people are not relating politics. To the conditions on the ground and the conditions yeah. in their lives, they're not. And the Correct. and and what they're doing is they have a disassociation with. All right, here's someone in. I'm supposed to go out. I'm supposed to rally these people to come vote for these people. I'm driving these people to the polls. I'm doing this. The work of politicking, of campaigning, door knocking, getting people to the polls. That's that's the that's the game. In Chicago, you get those people to the polls. It doesn't matter what they're voting for, as long as they're voting for the group. And right now, that's Democrats. I, I don't even see a way in which a Republican doesn't matter what they say. They can tie all of these, you know, all the policies. They can do all the talking. A Republican cannot make a difference in these situations because <clears throat> we're not doing the work of getting people to vote a certain way. And in Chicago, that's what it's all about. Peter, you had a comment on that, and then I know Ted does. Yeah, so. just w- w- one, brief, one brief comment. I mean, that's totally, that's totally correct. But, you know, the, in this binary system where the alternative is the Republican, you're, no matter what, the Republican kind of carry the baggage of the entire party. Both parties are, are obviously awful. What this country <laughs> badly needs is credible third and fourth choices, like, because obviously what we've got are, are not cutting it at all. Yeah, Bruce, wow. you, you asked the question about whether Republicans bear some blame. And uh, first, I would want to say that the Democrats bear the most blame because they, they have super majorities in Illinois. Right, they have right. been pushing this stuff and, and telling the story and, and effectively buying the votes. Right. And, and, and the poor voters think they're getting something, but they're not. Uh, but that said... The Republicans, I mean, this data is just standing there, stark naked. Right. It's there. Right. You know, Chicago had the worst unemployment rate among all big cities in 2021. 20, uh, <clears throat> Why can't the Republicans make a case? And they haven't figured out. They don't know how to talk yeah. about this. They don't know how to present what? it. And they don't know how to defend it. They don't know how to go into what those neighborhoods they... either. That's another well, that's problem. Well, they also, they also don't what, have what within, 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 the, 
within the vast uh, population of very wealthy Republicans, they don't have enough big spenders that are going to put their money where their mouth is so they can buy the television ads to make the case in a very entertaining and educational way to get these statistics yeah. out. There's, Peter, there's you're, no, you're, you're, no, you're shaking your head. Yeah, there's no case to, there's no case to make. I mean, the, the, the what Democrats about those statistics? Win, wait, wait, just one second. There's, there, just wait. The, the Democrats only win because there manages to be a worse option. And to Americans, especially who live in cities, and I mean, just think about the people you interact with in a city and then imagine a candidate who is allied with a party that manages to be worse than Democrats. It's like Democrats and also weird social issues, anti-gay, anti-abortion. There's nothing to sell. Them. They will never win. There's no slick Hollywood production that could ever get them to win when they have that baggage. Okay, we've got a pause. 1-800-723-8029. We'll talk more about this subject when we roll on, and we'll also talk about crime from coast to coast. We have been monopolizing the conversation. We've got callers on the line. Let's go to John, listening to us in McHenry, Illinois. Go ahead. You're on the air, John. Uh, good evening. I just wanted to get back to the Washington Post ABC poll, all yep. of y'all were talking about earlier. Yeah. And I have some real questions. First off, on just the polling in general, showing, I mean, it just, it just comes across as just blatant gaslighting. But getting back to the should President Biden be replaced, somehow, some way, I think uh, California's Gavin Newsom is going to be replacing President Biden somewhere mm-hmm. between now and the August convention in Chicago. Right. And look what happened late last week. He vetoed a gender-affirming bill in California, and he's going to be at the uh, candidates' forum in um in Simi Valley mm-hmm. uh, to give the Democratic response to the Republican presidential candidates. He's going to be there in person. So what mm-hmm. do all of y'all think? I'm like Stephanie. I'm, I like, uh, I still like Governor Ron DeSantis. I don't believe the fake polls, and we're going to find I, out in January. How I, think you're, I think you're right, and the question is, it is, it is it's a series of big donors and real shrewd politicians. If you put them in a room, and let's say they're Democrats here, they cannot they can they cannot look at each other in the eye and say we can win this for biden i don't think anybody can really say that so they're going to get into a room and they're going to find some way to move joe biden out i don't know it's not going to be easy because i think they have to move him out and her out because if however if if gavin gavin newsom is coming along as the possible candidate you can't have two people from California on the same ticket. So that sort of deals with the issue of what you do with her. Then, of course, the big question is, what do you do with her? Because I'm, I'm not so sure that Gavin Newsom is going to rally black support uh, enough to overcome any loss of black support, primarily from women, that will happen if uh, Kamala Harris gets dumped. So... And I also think, depending on how late it is, the one person that can write one check and not have a fundraiser is J.B. Pritzker. And again, I think he pales in comparison 
with uh, with the governor of California in a variety of ways, most most notably cosmetically. But uh, again, well, I, if you've I, got I, the money, you I can pull it off. Well, respectfully, I do think uh, Governor Pritzker will be given a hand to whom to be replacing Kamala Harris on the ticket. And my number one <laughs> guess from the Democrats would be Senator Duckworth. But also there are other congressional um, Democrats here that are making a name for themselves. Some of them are relatively young, like Lauren Underwood right. um, or Raja Krishnamurthy. That's a but big either step, way, though. Uh, just, uh, just want to maybe Stephanie or the others, uh, Mr. Dabrowski or uh, the other gentleman can help out here, too. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for your call. Appreciate it. Let's go to Eduardo, who listens tonight and joins us from Tampa, Florida. Nice to hear from Florida, Eduardo. Go ahead. Yeah, Bruce, I was going to bring up uh, Mr. Eric Johnson, not to be confused with, uh, you know, yeah. Mayor Johnson. Brandon. And, uh, the, the, Brandon. the mayor of the mayor of <laughs> Dallas, Texas, who right. this right. week announced he's leaving the Democratic Party and becoming a Republican. Right. right, and he's emphasizing a strong police chief. Obviously, he's definitely somebody who supports the police, unlike some of the Democratic mayors around the nation, uh, having a budget that reflects uh, public safety. So I want to get your panel's uh, reaction to that. Let's go to Ted, because he's done some research on that uh, with you know, your group at WirePoints. Yeah, you know, I was fascinated when uh, he recently spoke up about, uh, you know, being pro-police and, and the way he talked about it. You know, we, we, we did a, a, a back and forth, a reel, an Instagram reel uh, of Brandon Johnson versus Eric Johnson. And it's fascinating to hear two different two different languages, one that was serious about funding the police, one, one that was serious about, about arresting and, and, and you know, stopping crime versus Brandon Johnson, who's, who's done the opposite. Brandon Johnson is excusing crime, uh, excusing criminals, and, uh, and and making a real mess of, of Illinois. So I, I think it's, fa- or Chicago, I think it's fantastic that uh, uh, what Eric Johnson has said and done. Peter, do you uh, agree with the assessment of Eric Johnson or uh, Brandon Johnson that's been articulated? I mean, I think, uh, frankly, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's really hard to get a very clear picture of the ROI on you know policing at any given time um, in CPD in this case I think the police budget for Chicago is more than two billion dollars a year. Um, I think it would be great to like take a look and make sure that all we're spending we're getting back uh, in terms of safety. Um, but I live in the city. You know Bruce, you obviously spent a lot of time in the city. Um, you know I think it's the same old story whether it's Brandon Johnson or someone else. There are places in the city that there's money and investment and care and crime is very low there. And then there are places that there isn't money, there isn't investment, and there isn't really any care, and crime is very high there. Where there is tons and tons of unmet need, there's more and more crime. So I think you know the, the, the state of policing, the level of policing is kind of secondary to the circumstances on the ground. You know, why do you have areas that are unsafe? Why do you have areas that are so high crime? And then other areas where you know the, the worst that'll happen is you know an instance of shoplifting. Not to say that that's you know to be condoned, but that has less to do with police presence and much more to do with actual investment and money in the area. Mm-hmm. Amongst amongst your progressive friends, how much do they talk about crime? Do they talk about it more so than they did two years ago, Peter? You know, I can't speak for my progressive friends, but no, not really at all more or less. I think the focus um, is rightly on sort of why there is crime. Why, when the police budgets steadily go up year after year, and again, we're spending two plus billion dollars in, in just 
the city of Chicago on police, you know, why does crime increase, you know, if we're actually investing more and more in law enforcement? Well, one that of the, comes one down of, to sort of one of the real challenges, the of the crime. one of the real challenges, which we will deal with in our second hour uh, with our guest, uh, Todd uh, Bestman, uh, who is author of a book called Overrun, How Joe Biden Unleashed the Greatest Border Crisis in U.S. History is what many large cities, including Chicago, are dealing with, and that is the thousands of people, uh, immigrants, illegal immigrants, uh, asylum seekers, who are coming to Chicago and looking for a place to stay. In Chicago, we're talking about building tents. The Cook County Board, which includes Chicago, they're talking about buying hotels where the illegal immigrants can stay. And uh, we're going to talk about that in the second hour to find out what's happening in Chicago, because what's happening in Chicago is happening in large and mid-sized cities all over the United States. It isn't just a Texas issue anymore. We'll talk about that for a full hour in the next hour of Beyond the Beltway from coast to coast and border to border every Sunday night at beyondthebeltway.com. Thanks for joining us tonight. Good evening, everyone. This is Bruce Dumont. We continue with our number two of Beyond the Beltway. And joining us uh, uh, as our special guest in this hour, we welcome Todd Benzman. He is an immigration investigator. He is author of a new book called Overrun, How Joe Biden Unleashed the Greatest Border Crisis in U.S. History. And we continue here in the studio with Stephanie Hitt and Ted Dabrowski and also uh, with Peter Hanna. They'll chime in with some questions as well. But, uh let, let me begin to you uh, with you, uh, uh, Mr. Bestman, because bef- when we spoke earlier today, you shared a piece of information with with me that you have shared with your within your journalistic sphere of influence. Some rather shocking news about things that are happening with illegal immigrants that don't have a it's it hasn't been widely spread. Uh, in a journalistic way. So what's what's the big shocking news you can share with us tonight? Well, shocking to some, uh, maybe not to others, uh, is that the Biden administration for the last uh, eight months has been flying or um, approving for flight, rather, hundreds of thousands of immigrants while they're still in foreign countries south of even Mexico. Uh, looks like 221,000 they've flown into, they've allowed to fly into 43 different airports across the United States. Uh, this information comes to us by way of a FOIA request that went into litigation uh, with my organization. We're, we're still litigating it, so we can't tell you which airports because they still won't release which airports, but do you know uh, what do this, you know what's happening? What is happening to them in these countries of departure? Uh, are they being fingerprinted? Are they being vetted in any way? Uh, what what's happening there before they get on these planes uh, to the United States? Well, they are required to to enter their names and fo- and uh, triangulation photographs, uh, which is a biometric into the CBP-1 cell phone app, uh, which is um, sort of a a relatively new 
administration uh, management system to keep people from recrossing by mm-hmm. just having them make an appointment to meet CBP or, C- or officers at ports of entry, either in the interior of the country or, or at the land ports, so that their numbers don't tally with the illegal entrance. And they can say, well, the numbers are down, down, down of illegal entrance. Are they're these- not releasing they're not releasing the total numbers that they're that are going through these the the cell phone app. Are these asylum seekers or are they illegal immigrants? Well, they're they're all intending border crossers. They intended to cross the border. A lot of them get in line for the CBP one benefit, but then they don't follow through. They just figure, well, we'll just cross illegally anyway because it's quicker. So huge numbers are just kind of blowing off the CBP one app, but there's still a lot that are that are using it. Uh, when we talk about vetting, it's important to know that the nationalities of people that are using these systems uh, to you know put their biometrics in and whatnot, uh, we're not really able to vet them because like we don't we don't have a good enough relationship with the government of Venezuela, for example to ask for an intel share or police reports or from for cuba which is another huge number and also nicaragua you know the uh, ortega regime there mm-hmm. we're not friends with them either but when they uh, when they so, when they get on that plane uh do they know where they are going in the united states and is there any advance warning to the municipalities that they're going to that uh, a plane load of people are coming to their city no, uh, the entire program is probably one of the most tightly kept state secrets of the administration. Uh, we are having to, you know, litigate for those numbers, and it's and it's not easy litigation either. It's been dragged out and dragged out. I don't even know when we're going to get the total the total num- uh, request that we asked for. The the uh, people of Chicago, for example. They're just familiar with people that are taking buses in. Right. Oh my God, they're getting off of buses. But I can almost guarantee you that Chicago O'Hare Airport, uh, that there have been tens of thousands landing there as well, quite unbeknownst to Chicago. I've been told with sources that Miami is another uh, big one, and so is New York, JFK. Uh, many, many, many thousands flying into Miami and JFK and when you say, 43 other when you airports. say when you say tens of thousands that's a hell of a lot of airplanes uh, so I'm I'm I am I am shocked by that number that you mentioned certainly you know when I think of a bus I think of a bus of 45 or 50 people and by the way we can say literally tonight right now as I speak in the city of Chicago there are buses coming from unknown destinations that are coming to Chicago that are going to be dropped on the door of the of the city of Chicago and the county of Cook to deal with to find a place for them to live tonight I mean that's how relevant this this thing is, and uh, you're with the Center for Immigration Reform or Study rather, uh, so that we should mention your your background. And uh, as as you look at this subject and you've studied it for a long time, is there an answer to this? 
Is there a political answer that can resolve this crisis in your view, uh, Todd? Well, sure. Uh, we saw during the uh, final year of the Trump administration, the numbers fall of apprehensions at the border fall to the lowest point that they had been in 45 years. Those numbers were at about uh, in the 20 to 30,000 a month range when the Biden administration came in, primarily because of two or three policies. One was called remain in Mexico, which means that the border patrol can pick up illegal immigrants and push them back into Mexico where they have to wait for their asylum claims there the entire time. There's a four or five year backlog. So that's not the point. The, the point of the system is that you get to wait inside the U.S. and win, lose or draw, you just disappear. Uh, you know, if you win or if you lose or draw, you disappear. So nobody wanted to wait in Mexico. Nobody was coming for the great Mexican dream. Uh, and then the, there was another one called Safe Third Country, which said that, you know, Hondurans that crossed through Guatemala and Mexico and didn't apply for asylum there were then automatically deemed ineligible at the U.S. border. And so, you know, that wasn't good. And then finally, they put in because Title the, let me just which, Let me just stop one thing, because the, the way it used to be is that if you're from another country, it's the first country that you set your feet in where you're supposed to deal with... Uh, your uh, your immigration issues. So the people that were going to Me Mexico, they were not processed by Mexico or Mexican government, and then they just waved them to the U.S. border. Is that correct? I need a quick answer there because no, we're going to a break. No. Okay, a I'm going to I'm gonna let you. I'm going to let you correct my mistake when we come back. We're going to a break. We will hear from our other guests as well. One eight hundred seven two three eighty two eighty nine. When we come back, Todd is going to correct. My mistake. Dumont, we are back, and I want to go to uh, Todd Bestman again. Todd, I I, uh, I missummarized something before the break, and I want you to correct me. Go ahead. Totally not a big deal. Uh, you know, most people don't know the, the, that kind of uh, down-in-the-weeds material. But, but um, the issue at hand was that there was a policy uh, that uh, in the Trump era that if you crossed into through a country that was re regarded as safe and did not apply for asylum, you were ineligible to apply at the U.S. border. That actually... The asylum law, the U.S. asylum law as it stands right now, doesn't uh, address uh, whether you could have applied or that you already did apply. And in fact, many, many uh, hundreds of thousands of people that have crossed into the U.S. and applied for asylum already did have asylum in multitudes of other countries for many, many years. Mm -hmm. uh, they, it just that our law doesn't, doesn't uh, bar you from applying for U.S. asylum. It's one of the things that we think that needs to be uh, tweaked, I guess, in that, that law. Now, Europe has one. Mm -hmm. 
So last last week on this program, we did uh, we did a couple of hours, and we talked about and tried to separate and identify those who are illegal immigrants from those that are asylum seekers, and mentioning that if you are an asylum seeker, you are not breaking U.S. law. You're waiting for a judge to basically sign off on your case, and that could take four to six years to happen. If you are an illegal immigrant, it's completely different. Uh, there are some benefits that are available for an asylum seeker, and those benefits are not necessarily, in fact, they're not available uh, to uh, illegal immigrants, but local municipalities can basically make their own rules on this. Uh, Peter, I know you're, uh, you're our legal expert this evening, and uh, uh, I want to get your reaction to what you've heard thus far and uh, what, uh, what solution would you offer to this crisis? Yeah. Wow. Well, it's a, it's a lot of a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, I would just start by saying that <clears throat> Biden's asylum policy, not even a month ago in early October, a Ninth Circuit panel of uh, judges, uh, one of the judges said pretty plainly the Biden's administration of what it calls pathways rule isn't meaningfully different from that of the previous administration. The Biden administration was fighting to maintain this in court, and the judge described the current rule as a combination of the Trump era point of entry rule and transit rule, which are basically the uh, the things that require people to either pass through a different country. They can't enter America illegally and seek asylum. They have to path, pass through a safe harbor country and seek asylum and prove that they did so first and then enter illegally. So it's not a meaningfully different thing what the biden administration is doing and what the trump administration did not really uh the biden administration had a lower court declare that its approach which was a holdover of the trump approach could not proceed but this ninth circuit panel actually just said no it can proceed so we're back to the trump era asylum approach um i think at the same time i'd want to ask the guest at the end if his numbers include the number of flights, you know, how many of those people are unaccompanied minors, for example, because unaccompanied minor crossings increased most dramatically very recently. And by law, uh, this is a bipartisan decision by law, um, when an unaccompanied minor enters the country, the, the government has to take care of them or find them housing or find them some sort of accommodations. And a lot of those flights are from the border inward. And I know that DHS also had a plan last year called the Abbott plan. That's what they called it jokingly internally about kind of easing the tension at the borders by flying people into the center of the country. I'd, I'd want to know if sort of that, that's something that you thought about or you have those like okay. numbers sort of split up. Let's let and then I guess well, well, one, 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 let's let, let's let him, wait, Peter, let's let him answer the first two and then we'll go back oh, to you for the third but it's question. Not, yeah, it's, okay. it's not. No, I was answering your third part, Bruce, but I'm okay, happy but, to let the guests proceed. OK, very yeah. go ahead, guests. But first of all, I'm going to have to ask your help in advance to manage those questions to, so I can remember. But to your question, to your first question, it is true that the Biden administration just implemented a plan, a safe third country plan, just like the Trump one. But the big difference is that we can find no evidence whatsoever that it's being used. Mm, uh, okay. We have, we have now, now the Trump administration actually used it, but there is no evidence to date that the Biden, in fact, the evidence is quite the contrary. They're not using it. Uh, we have filed a FOIA request for the number of times that they've actually used that. I think the number probably would be close to zero. Uh, oh, I might even be have a paycheck on it. Um, okay. 
help me with the second question. <laughs> oh yeah, just um, those flights that you mentioned. I was curious how many oh, of those unaccompanied like, miners. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I did ask for a demographic breakdown uh, of those uh, flights, but they withheld that. Uh, oh, so great. I, I, I don't, I don't think, and we are still litigating that, but I don't think that that's how unaccompanied minors are being flown. There, there were unaccompanied minor flights internally inside the United States, like, you know, from border states to Chicago or, mm. you know, yeah. there, 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 but those are different. That's something completely different. The, oh, there these is are a huge border. Yeah. Ted, Ted Dabrowski yeah, has, a, has a question for you as well, as does Stephanie Hitz. Uh, Ted? Well, I, I have a very simple one. You know, you hear uh, people like Governor Pritzker in Illinois and, and, and some others complain about Abbott, complain about uh, DeSantis sending the buses up. Uh, I haven't heard anything about Governor Pritzker complaining. I don't know who he'd complain to. I guess uh, it would be Biden for his policy to allow airplanes to fly into O'Hare. And uh, should we expect to hear from Pritzker? I know the answer, but uh, should we expect to hear from Pritzker uh, complaining about Biden? Yeah, I don't. I mean, w one thing about the, um, I can say, I live in Texas and I've been following the border for a long time. Uh, the Biden, the border, the bus, uh, I guess, operation, Abbott's bus operation, that's voluntary. Everybody that steps foot on that bus uh, is really just taking advantage of a free ticket. Uh, had had Abbott not provided those buses, he's not putting them on buses. Nobody's forcing them onto buses. In fact, they all sign a waiver saying, I, I am doing this voluntarily. They were going to go anyway. They, they're saving a couple hundred dollar bus fare, uh, and that's why they're doing it. But I also would say that the immigrants were going to all of these cities by their tens of thousands long before 18 months, two years before Biden never even put, I mean, I'm sorry, Biden, Abbott ever, there's lots of bees, uh, before, mm -hmm. before Abbott ever put a single um, bus on the road. Uh, same with DeSantis. Uh, they were complaining in New York, uh, the schools were being overcrowded many, many months before any of this busing stuff happened. So I think there's a little bit too much onus on the this busing stunt thing. Mm -hmm. No, I, uh, I think there, by the way, I, I think, and I've said it on this program, I think Governor Abbott of Texas should get some medal because what, what he has done with his decisions has basically said to the political leadership around the country who have all articulated a welcoming city rhetoric, it's basically put up or shut up. And he's called, he's called their game. And again, it should not be the responsibility of one state to deal with this national issue. So I congratulate uh, the governor of Texas for what he's doing. You know, we've dealt with this subject for many years on this program, and periodically we will have a, a Texas sheriff who will talk about what's happening to his or her community. But again, you look what happens, what's happening in Eagle Pass, Texas, which I guess is where the real sieve is at the moment. I mean, that that's uh, no city. No city can survive that, let alone Chicago or New York. And again, uh, New York, uh, obviously they've got a bully pulpit because they're in New York. But again, uh, you know, they do, want to, they do want to describe themselves as a welcoming city. Stephanie. All right. I have two questions, Todd. Um, one is um, these airplane flights coming from other countries. Who's flying these planes? Who's, uh, 
who's paying for them, who's, um, you know, and how do these people get alerted, oh, show up at the airport this day, this flight? So that's my first question. And let, then, let, 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 let him answer the first oh, question. Okay, first. and then I got a, a really we don't good get, We don't want to get lost in too many. And, I, and I got a really good that. second one. So <laughs> okay. come back. Go ahead. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm challenged to keep track. But, uh, so the, the original policy document released in October of 2022, which was when this program was launched, and then it was expanded in uh, January, wow. says that. The immigrants in their other countries will apply uh, for a travel authorization while still in the country, their country, or, uh, or an adopted country. And when they get the approval, then they it's on them to purchase a commercial airline ticket. So I'm assuming that they're paying for the, their own airfare, uh, or you know maybe there's something you know like a pass-through money where they get reimbursed mm-hmm. by somebody later. You know, but it seems like they're paying for it. They're required to pay for it on their own, out of their own pocket. Well, that's good. Right. Well, that's a little bit. Okay, that, that, so my next question. That's one of the best question, ideas I've heard so far. And we can talk about it. And is it going to be a trend around the country? And that is um, the development. There's the, what, 60-mile development in Texas uh, that people are building to basically create these little um, illegal immigrant towns. <coughs> Uh, what is the name of it? Uh, Colony Heights. Um, That's is, okay. Yeah. Well, you're referring to a uh, a rather unique uh, yeah. community in Liberty Liberty County, Texas. It's been there for ten years, uh, but it is absolutely booming right now. It right. is uh, grown to sixty square miles in the right. forest lands of Old East. Uh, mostly illegal immigrants are said to live there. Uh, federal law enforcement uh, rarely goes in there, and it's very thinly patrolled, so it's regarded as a no-go zone of an illegal immigrant settlement, the largest in America. Todd, we've got to we've got to break for a second. We'll be right back with our guests and the subject: illegal immigration. Getting into the nitty-gritty tonight on Beyond the Beltway. Dumont back. We continue with our guest, Todd Besman. He joins us. He's an immigration investigator. He's with the Center for Immigration Reform, and he is the author of Overrun, How Joe Biden Unleashed the Greatest Border Crisis in U.S. History. Ted Dabrowski joins us. He is with WirePoints, president of WirePoints in Chicago. Peter Hanna joins us. He is a professor and a materialist at Kent College of Law. And uh, Republican commentator uh, Stephanie Hitt uh, joins us as well. Um, let me let me go back to, to you, uh, Todd, to, to ask you, at this moment in time, um, you know, this story is changing every day. More and more people are knowing about it every day. It seems to me that one of the things that's changed in the last several months is that it isn't just Fox News that's talking about this. I'm seeing stories about this on ABC, NBC, and I don't watch much CBS, so I don't know whether they're doing it or not. Mm-hmm. But would you would you agree that maybe the awareness of these issues is greater today than it was three months ago? 
Yes, uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that the, the big inflection point in this crisis, the crisis is now almost three years old. Uh, almost five million people are now in the country from who had crossed the southern border. The, the big inflection point was the demise of a measure from the Trump era called Title 42. That was this instant pushback. Everybody who crosses gets pushed right back to Mexico, no asylum. That really drove down the numbers. Uh, the Biden administration uh, kept part of it all the way up through May 12th. And when they decided to get rid of it once and for all, the intelligence community predicted that there would be anywhere from 10,000 a day to 18,000 a day, this really massive, uh, really huge, massive number that nobody would be able to control. And instead of that happening, there was a pause at the border while the immigrants figured out, like, are they going to do mean things to us under the new policy? Uh, and that took about a month or two. And then they discovered that there is no negative consequence to crossing illegally at all. They were promising that Biden administration was promising that there would be very tough consequences. Uh, like one of your other guests mentioned, you know, safe third country, all of these things, none of them are being used. And the world has discovered that if you come to the border, you're probably going to get in like at 99 percentile guaranteed. And so this incredible rush that the intelligence community predicted back in May and the administration agreed with it is happening now. It's just a little bit delayed. We're yeah. having 10,000 days, 14,000 days. Every center processing center along the border is completely overwhelmed. They're having to just release people into the streets. Uh, it is an absolute chaos. And that is the, it's just the delayed prediction. I mean, they were, everybody was predicting this would happen. My organization and myself, we were just it's going to take a month or two, and then it would happen, and that's just what's happening. What uh, at this moment in time, if you want to come to the United States legally, what do you have to do, and how long does it take if you want to do it legally? Well, it just depends on what you're going for. I mean, there's tourist visas, there's uh, there's you know non-immigrant visas, and then there's there's immigrant visas. Well, what if you want to come to the United States permanently? Permanently, what do you want to do? It's, what do you have to do? It's not it's not as fast, cheap, or easy as crossing the border. I can tell you that no nation has a, a that simple, a cheap, easy uh, way to get into the country to stay. Uh, so uh, depends on what you're going for, but. It can be elaborate to and take and take years and be pretty expensive to legally immigrate into the United States, uh, which is why if you're going to let people in at the border on mass, in mass, like pretty much everybody gets in at the border, your legal immigration system just kind of collapses from neglect, you know, because what's the point, right. right? Why bother with the legal system if? They're letting you in the illegal way just the same, and you get to stay forever. And, and if you, here's one other question. If you want to enter the United States 
and you want to claim uh, asylum, what questions are asked? What are the legitimate reasons why someone can claim asylum and, and basically be granted entry into the United States? Yeah, I mean, the, the quick, simple answer to that is uh, it has to be government persecution on the basis of five uh, uh, criteria that include things like, you know, your political party or your your sexual orientation or your um, tribal affiliation or nationality or race, those kinds of things uh, that you are being persecuted and that you're fleeing persecution uh, that you're coming over. The vast majority of these ones that are crossing into the United States are not fleeing anything like that. And they'll tell you that. Uh, I've, I've interviewed thousands and thousands of interviews of, of uh, immigrants uh, that were on their way here, and nobody ever says about per persecution. They just say, I'm trying to get a job and make some money. They're economic migrants. Most of them were living safely and prosperously in other countries that were not, like nobody wants to live in Haiti. We all get that. But the vast majority of Haitians that are entering the United States have been living in Chile and Brazil for years and years with residency and asylum already. And they decided to come now because we were letting everybody in. So we they had were a, like, well, we're we, going to. One, one last question that I have. We had a guest on this program last week, uh, a longtime uh, opponent of illegal immigration. And uh, Roseanne Polita was her name. And she said that a lot of. Uh, non-NGOs uh, who work with them on a, as, as they come to the United States, a lot of them are basically giving uh, briefs to the uh, asylum seekers, telling them, coaching them on what to say to the asylum judge so they get in the United States. Have you seen any evidence of that? Or uh, do you think, I mean, the big question is how many of these people are lying through their teeth? Well, the immigrants that I've interviewed over the years tell me that that they get their information about how to lie on about asylum from other uh, immigrants that got in successfully ahead of them. Uh, and they'll just and it spreads around on social media. Here's what you need to say. You know, tell them you're gay, or tell them that you know a police officer was shaking your family down, or tell them. And so very often asylum officers will just get the exact same story over and over again, thousands and thousands of times, but they just kind of have to say, okay, we'll let you in and you can fight it out in court. And of course, nobody shows up to their court hearings or very few do because judges tend to, to say no. Uh, once they do get in front of judges, judges turn down Guatemalans, for instance, you know, 80, 85% of the time, 90%. Uh, Haitians almost never get asylum, so they don't bother going through with it. They just use the story to get past Border Patrol, and then after that, they just, uh, you know, the, and come if, and get me. And, if, and, a if a judge, in this court process, this may be after many years, if a judge says to a, you know, Honduran, uh, we do not grant you asylum, how does that Honduran get back to Honduras? Does he do it on, on his own recognizance, or is there a plane or, or bus Walked waiting right for out, him? Yeah. Now, mo most just disappear and join the illegal immigrant population. That's that's why we've got 12 or 13 million illegally 
present people here because they just they just say come and get me I'll, uh, in, in the years that it will take for you to come and get me I'll make a whole bunch of money and if and, th and that assumes that you'll ever come and get me uh, because most of the time we don't we can't we have six thousand ICE officers to track people down. Stephanie's got, yeah. Stephanie's got a question. All right. You know, as you describe this, it, there's clearly a system. There's a process. There's information. There's organization involved in all this. How much of that is run by cartels? I mean, let's let's be honest. I think a lot of Americans need to know and understand of the tens of thousands crossing our border every day. How much of that is literally cartel organization and activity? And are they running are they running this whole process? Well, Mexican, the Mexican cartels control the uh, exits from Mexico into the United States. Okay. Like physically control it under force of arm. Like 100% uh, of it? Of, no, no. Just, uh, just the main crossing points, uh, the, the popular areas where there's a lot of infrastructure for, the, for immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, the, the cartels will charge you to smuggle you across, or if you want to cross on your own, you have to pay a certain amount, like as a, like a toll mm -hmm. to cross. But um, in some cases, they're doing the smuggling all the way from Central America into the United States, and they'll charge, you know, $15,000 or $10,000 for those trips. But sometimes it's just, you know, give me $1,500 and I'll let you cross the river. Uh, so I mean, it, it's it's really a gamut, but I wouldn't say that um, that the cartels are responsible for for uh, bringing most of them in and across. They're just taking advantage. They're putting their sail up in the wind, and boy, yeah. is it a wind! They're making yeah. billions and billions. Yeah. Of they're getting they're getting they're getting a, a piece of the pie in some some way for yeah, uh, yeah. every person you see crossing that uh, Rio Grande is probably uh, paid off uh, some. Uh, someone in the cartel somewhere in Mexico. We've got to continue. Uh, we are going to continue with our guests and get questions from our guests as well uh, for our guest, Todd Bestman, who joins us in our number two. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. Come back. It is our last segment, and we're going to go to uh, Ted Dabrowski, who's got a question or comment. Fantastic. Um, Todd, thanks for all, all the answers you're giving. You know, one of the big concerns we all have also is kind of the, the social costs, the economic costs, and, and there's a lot of political costs as well that are going to be had. Uh, we don't know how it will play out, but when you think about what's happening in Chicago, you've got this big you know, Latino influx. You've got a black population that's saying, wait, what the heck is going on? And uh, I, I want to give you a few stats. Unwed births in Chicago for blacks are at 82%. For Latinos, they're almost at 60%. Crime in Chicago, we've, we've been the, the murder capital in terms of total number of homicides for 11 years in a row. <laughs> you got crime. You got the education. You know, the, the, uh, the black reading level in all of Chicago public schools, only one out of every 10 kids can read at grade level. And then you've got the jobs problem. We talked about that just a bit ago. Chicago black unemployment, the highest in the country. What the heck, you know, what what should people be thinking, especially the, the Chicagoans, the people who are here, who are not happy with what's going on in Chicago? They're suffering, they're struggling, and here we go. We start 
doing all these different programs. We're rumored to spend over a billion dollars on Medicaid alone for these illegal immigrants. So you know, the resources are going to be troubled. Crime's a problem already. The jobs, the, the, the education, the unwed births. Talk to us about what you think the social costs are going to look like. Todd? Right. Well, I mean, this is, this is a, um, a permanent uh, transformative event. We have experienced nothing like this in American history. Uh, we have had 5 million, close to 5 million illegal immigrants come into the country in 30 months. Uh, by the time the administration's first term or the, the term is over, it's probably going to be on the order of 7 or 8 million especially at the new high rates that they're coming across now. Your city has seen nothing yet. You guys have seen nothing yet. Uh, it is just beginning. Uh, there are uh, tens of thousands that are headed your way every single month. This is not going to end, and that's just by bus. I don't even know how many are flying in, and those are going to cost. I mean, there are going to be uh, issues with these are unfunded burdens. Nobody asked the voters of Chicago or this, the assembly to approve uh, funds for just this unexpected rush of humanity that are all needy. Nobody's insured. Uh, very few of them speak English <coughs> and have job skills. Uh, they're all going to have to have housing, uh, food, clothing. They're going into your public schools. There is going to be crime that's associated with that population. <clears throat> There's no around it that's going to clog your criminal justice system. Uh, you know, listen, this is, I'm not talking about culturally, I'm just talking about fiscal costs uh, because those are pocketbook <clears throat> issues. Um, I met yesterday in Washington, uh, three of your leaders from the black community. I had lunch with them at an event yesterday. Uh, I'm in back in Austin now and they were telling me that the city just um, approved a program where they're going to be providing each individual in a household. I don't. I haven't confirmed this. I'm telling you, I have not confirmed this. But that uh, if you have four people in a household in an apartment, the city is going to provide one thousand two hundred dollars per person. So forty six hundred dollars a month for a family of four for three years straight. It's HUD money that's being passed through the state of Illinois, passed through the city. But the source on that, well, let's, let's be clear, uh, this is not verified, but who was the source for this verified. information? Three of your black uh, leaders uh, who, who I met in- Do you know uh, their names? In, you got their names? Yeah, hold on, I've got their cards right here. All right, good, we wanna get their cards and then uh, Peter, I wanna give you an yeah, opportunity, uh, Stephanie. I don't know if yeah, I want to name them here. Well, 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 you're doing it, but Peter, you, you look like you're shaking your head. You want to make a? This will be probably a final well, comment or question. Yeah, I guess. I guess but, just but a, a couple of. Go ahead. Go ahead, uh, uh, Todd. To finish just to finish really quickly. They were telling me that, you know, this the, a lot of those uh, families are going to be living in uh, housing in uh, black areas of Chicago, black community areas. And that they're just people are furious. They're hearing about this, and they're like, "What about us?" But again, we, who were these? Who were these? Exactly. Who were these people that said this to you, Todd? I mean, that's, that's kind of a uh, an important piece of information if you have their cards there. Yeah, I have. I have one. Uh, let me. Um, 
Well, I was looking at that. That, yeah, that, yeah, but, yeah, but um, I, I heard that same that, conversation. Well, yeah, say again. Say again. Do you have the names there? Andre Barnes handed this to me yesterday. Uh, he lives in Chicago. Uh, He's a black right. there. Don't know um, him. And there were two, there were two others. But he's uh, right. Can, can, as as they, as he who can I just say ahead. respond uh, briefly? Yes, yeah. So Peter. first off, you know I don't see any I don't see any people as I don't see people as burdens. I don't see people who uh, need something as needy. This is a country of immigrants. Um, the bottom line is one question that's kind of missing in a lot of this uh, of time scholarship is why why is this happening? Why are people fleeing one place and coming here? What is what is the cause of that? And it is instability, largely the result of our activities in the Southern Hemisphere, in Central America. I mean, very disruptive in creating conditions where folks have not been able to have governments and not been able to see prosperity. So, you know, in a lot of ways, when I see some of the migrant problem uh, occurring, it, it, it can't, I, I can't shake the feeling that it's the chickens coming home to roost. So why don't we change our policies in a way so that there's less of a need for migrants to come uh, so that countries can, without, you know, having to worry about, you know, Inter intervention interference from the United States, but also, I mean, just begin to Peter, flourish. Peter, that that's obviously a, a very uh, uh, a pessimistic interpretation. But again, the other it's thing a, is, no, it's not pessimistic, Bruce. Well, it's, it's, well, it's it realistic. real. Uh, it's I, realistic. I, I didn't say it wasn't real. It, it's very I have pessimistic. An I have an answer for you. I have a good answer for you. A quick answer uh, that comes that comes directly from the immigrants. I interview thousands of them. And I always ask them that. Why are you coming now? What news at the border uh, did you hear that made you sell everything and come right now? And the answer overwhelmingly is they're letting us in. We're coming because they're letting us in. Everybody who goes there gets in. This is like they've well, never seen anything they're coming like for this in their home. economic benefit. They're coming for the money. Yeah. That's well, also, let's do one thing. We've done a great job of promoting around the world that we're the greatest country in the world. We're at a point now, and we've discussed in the last two hours on this program, we've discussed an issue that really raises and challenges that challenge that we have. So we thank you very much, Todd. I hope you'll come back and join us again, our other guests as well. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks to Fritz Coleman. Good night.